0: And now, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, our show is called Dial 911 for Health Care. We'll be looking at one of the most serious and yet unpublicized parts of today's health care crisis in this country. We've learned that because many people don't have access to health care, they call 911 when they're sick. The fire department and the ER room become their health care providers. Sickness calls are 82% of local fire department calls. Yes, you heard that right. Sickness calls are 82% of local fire department calls rather than fire-related calls. When fires or major traffic accidents happen, often emergency teams are not available because they're out on sickness calls. Hospital emergency rooms are sometimes not available for the same reason. Sometimes people in serious need cannot get help. This is an important part of the country's health care crisis that most of us are not aware of. On our show today will be Julie Winokur, who directed and produced a film called Firestorm. It closely follows a county fire department for several years, revealing in compelling detail the growing crisis that these 911 calls are causing. Also on the show will be David Pimentel, a paramedic and EMS district captain who has 25 years experience with the fire department. Also, Dr. Lee Weiss, an emergency room doctor and regional medical director for Emergent Medical Associates. In addition, we're fortunate enough to have a patient who frequented the ER called 911 because she was uninsured and lacked access to health care. For the last year, she's been in a special program to connect patients to resources. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The United States is suffering from an epidemic of monumental proportions, which is so large and so poorly understood that it is not being talked about in the mainstream media. Our country is extremely sick and suffering from ESDR, or economic stratification and disproportionate representation. In the United States... These illnesses play an important role in shaping people's lives. Your chances of living a long and healthy life closely track your income. Residents of wealthy districts can expect to live longer and better. Young women in poor states of the United States are more likely to become pregnant in their teenage years, and their babies are less likely to survive than their peers in wealthier states. A child from a disfavored district has a higher chance of dropping out of high school than if his parents have a steady mid-range income and live in a prosperous part of the country. As for the children of the poor who remain in school, they will do worse, achieve lower scores, obtain less fulfilling and lower paid employment. The incidence of mental illness correlates closely with income. Even trust, the faith we have in our fellow citizens, corresponds negatively with differences in income. Between 1983 and 2001, mistrustfulness increased markedly in relation to the degree unregulated individual self-interest was applied to public policy. The gap between... The top 10% and the other 90% has been widening for the past 30 years. The top 10% currently take home 45 to 50% of the total national income. The top 1% control 40 to 50% of the country's wealth. Income inequality is now greater than it has been over the last century. Contrast, 1968, when the CEO of General Motors took home in pay and benefits about 66 times the amount paid to a typical GM worker. Today, the CEO of Walmart earns 900 times the wages of his average employee. Did you get that? The CEO of Walmart earns 900 times the wages of his average employee. Indeed, the wealth of the Walmart founder's family is estimated to be about $90 billion, which is the same as the bottom 40% of the entire United States population of 120 million. Let me just say that again, because it's almost unfathomable. One family... One family's wealth of 90 billion is the same as 40% of our country or 120 million people. This income inequality created by the economic stratification and the resultant disproportionate representation, remember, our country was founded on the importance of equal representation. This income inequality that has been created is provoking envy, resentment, tension, anger, and rage. As the 90% lose more and more of their life force, their physical and mental health, they turn to various substances to soothe their anguish and their impotence. They drink, drug, gamble, spend, and overeat. 60% 60% of the country is overweight or obese and the percentage continues to increase. What do you think the ep- or the obesity epidemic is saying? Perhaps screaming. There is class warfare going on in this country and 90% of the population is losing the war. Our story today is one manifestation ...of this most serious illness in our country. Yes, a serious illness affecting us all. Do you know that the uninsured are more at risk even while they're in hospitals? Uninsured Americans often have difficulty getting care and paying for medications... ...but what happens once they're admitted to a hospital with a life-threatening illness... A new study finds that even after they have heart attacks or strokes and are admitted to hospitals, the uninsured are more likely to die than those who carry private insurance. Yes, a gap persisted even after the researchers adjusted for disparities in the patient's underlying health, socioeconomic status, and other factors. These researchers analyzed more than 150 discharges of working-age Americans age 18 to 64 who were hospitalized for heart attack, stroke and pneumonia they found that the uninsured patients who had heart attacks listen to this folks the uninsured patients who had heart attacks were 52% more likely to die in the hospital than the privately insured and those who had a stroke were 49% more likely to die in the hospital and here's even more Since June 1st, when federal unemployment benefits began to expire, an estimated 325,000 jobless workers have been cut off. That number will swell to 1.25 million by the end of the month unless Congress extends the benefits. The Senate so far has failed to act. And why? Some senators, including Democrats, have balked at an unrelated provision that would begin to close a tax loophole enjoyed by some of the richest Americans. Yeah, you heard that right. Desperately needed unemployment benefits have been held hostage to a tax break for the rich, and the the Senate's Democratic leadership has had to delay and finagle to get its own caucus in line. To help cover the costs for the unemployment benefits, The Democratic lawmakers in the House started with a sound idea to close an egregious tax loophole that allows wealthy fund managers at private equity firms and other investment partnerships to pay a top tax rate of just 15% instead of what the rest of the world pays, or the rest of our country pays, rather, a top rate of 35%. You heard that right. These folks are paying 15%. The rest pay 35%. Closing this loophole would raise an estimated 25 billion dollars over 10 years and these private equity mavens, venture capitalists and other partnerships are lobbying to keep the loophole open thereby cutting off federal unemployment benefits. Today our show is called Dial 911 for Healthcare. We're here now with Judy Winokur, Executive Director Of Talking Eyes Media. She's a writer, director, documentary film producer who uses the visual power of film to catalyze positive social change. Her work has appeared on PBS, National Geographic, Media Storm, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and the Washington Post. Welcome, Julie. You heard my introduction, I hope?
1: Yes, I did. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Julie, we're going to play a clip from your film, Firestorm. And after we play it, I'm going to ask you to react to it and tell us what we heard. Okay. Here it comes, Julie.
2: What's your emergency? There's a lady on the, on the ground, Brown. here in the emergency room at Martin Luther King, and they are overlooking her claim, that and she's been discharged, and she's definitely sick, and everybody's ignoring her. What
3: would you want me to do for you, ma'am?
2: Send an to take us somewhere you help. Okay,
3: you're at,
4: the, you're at the hospital, ma'am. I know where I am. Ma'am, I, I cannot do anything for you for the quality of, of the hospital there. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. This 911 is used for emergency purposes only. An emergency. It's not an
2: emergency, ma'am. It is. It is it's
4: not an emergency. emergency. This line,
2: 911,
4: is used for emergency
0: purposes only. What are we listening to there? It sounds like a woman's in a hospital calling the fire department.
1: Uh, that's exactly what it is. It's a uh, situation that happened a couple of years ago where a woman named Edith Rodriguez was waiting in the emergency room of Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital, and she was uh, writhing in pain. She actually fell out of her chair. She was in serious, serious agony. And two nine one one calls came in to the fire department trying to get help for her, Uh, you know, while she was already sitting in a hospital waiting room. And in essence, the fire department said, as you heard, there's nothing we can do. You're already at a hospital. What do you expect us to do for you? Um, You know, which is a, a valid question. I mean, the job of the fire department, the job of paramedics, is to bring you to a hospital. And once you are at the hospital, it is the job of the hospital to then provide the care that you need. Uh, this unfortunately is an increasingly common situation where people are phoning from hospitals that are so crowded that they're not actually able to take care of the patients who are sitting and waiting for care and in desperation people are then calling 911 from hospitals to say please help me I'm, I'm here but nobody's taking care of me in this particular incident uh, incident uh, edith rodriguez actually died at the hospital she was not taken care of 45 minutes past and she had severe abdominal bleeding and she did die uh, at martin luther king jr hospital because she had not received care um you know the the point and i, I want to make this very clear because this is a very contentious case uh it did lead to the closing of martin luther king jr hospital because of violations of certain standards of care which had been chronic issues but the point of this incident in the film is not to indict Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital. It was to make, you know, make evident that this sort of thing will happen more and more frequently if we don't address the core problems, which have to do with lack of access to primary care, lack of access to doctors to maintain chronic health problems, uh, and uh, emergency room overcrowding, which results from some of you know, what I've already mentioned, and understaffing in hospitals so that they can't possibly meet the need. And then what's happening in Los Angeles and in many other cities is hospital closures. So they, they can't afford to provide care. They're not getting adequate reimbursements for people who don't um, have uh, health insurance. And as a result, the hospitals are closing, and the ones that remain open are burdened even more. So I wanted to make very clear throughout the film, this is not an isolated incident. It was not to make a commentary on any one hospital. It was to show that if we allow this to go unchecked and unresolved, that we will see this happening with more frequency as time goes on.
0: Julie, you worked on your film for five years. Was it the film primarily about uh, hospitals and, and what you're describing in just one area of the country? Or do you have reason to believe this is going on all over the United States?
1: Um, it's going on all over the United States. And although the film takes place in Los Angeles, it really uh, – this was a shout-out from the BOW to say, you know, Los Angeles is ground zero, that's why we chose to film in Los Angeles. But it is by no means isolated in, in this phenomenon.
0: You were in the hospitals doing the film. You were in fire departments doing the film. Is that correct? Yes. What was it like for you personally to witness what you witnessed as you were making your film?
1: Um, I, well, first of all, I, I didn't set out to make a film about what this film turned out to be. Uh, I really had set out to do a film about ER overcrowding because it is such a serious uh, problem across the United States. And when I was trying to figure out, you know, where should I film ER overcrowding, well, I knew Los Angeles was, uh, you know, having this pande- or epidemic of hospital closures. So I knew that their ERs were getting more and more and more full. So I then, you know, as a journalist, I stopped and I said, well, if I'm going to do ER overcrowding, most people think they know that's going on. So, you know, they're going to feel they don't need to see this film because it's telling them something they already know. So then I thought, well, what's an interesting angle to ER overcrowding? And what most people don't realize is that when an ER is full, uh, it is what we call saturated, and then ambulances are put on diversion. So, in essence, the doors of the hospital ER close, and ambulances are told, We are not receiving any more ambulances. We're too full. So, you got to go to the next hospital.
0: Let me make so sure I, have, I, let me just wait a second. I've got to make sure I heard that correctly. You're saying that at a certain point, the emergency room. Doors in a hospital close, like a store is closed, or closed for the weekend, or closed for vacation. The store, the, the doors of the emergency room are closed, and that's it. You don't get in there. They take no more pay. Did I, am, I, am I understanding that correctly?
4: No, no, no. Wait a minute. Um, Doctor Weiss just inter- uh, just. have a little
0: input. Okay, this is Dr. Lee Weiss. He's the Regional Director of Emergency Medical Services for Emergent Medical Associates, and uh, he's Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Centinella Hospital Medical Center. Thank you for joining right in. Let's hear.
4: Thank you, and uh, Julie uh, has created an incredible film uh, that details the travails not only of the paramedic EMS and fire department system of Los Angeles that are doing heroic work, but also what we're seeing in the front lines of an emergency department. And just for the record, Sentinela is uh, uh, the most impacted of uh, the hospitals surrounding uh, Martin Luther King Medical Center's closure and had a 300% increase in volume, admissions, paramedic EMS traffic in the time period after MLK's closure. Um, what Julie's referring to is saturation and diversion to EMS traffic. Uh, uh, the ability of patients to walk in and see patients is unabated. Uh, Patients uh, still can walk in and uh, be serviced by the hospital, although uh, clearly not nearly as efficiently as if they weren't saturated. Uh, But I don't want there to be this idea that we close the doors and we're closed to everyone. What we try to do, uh, or what hospitals try to do when they're saturated and go on diversion is uh, tell EMS we don't have room to take the patient off of your uh, uh, gurney and put them in a bed. Uh, and uh, several times in the film and in real life every day, uh, paramedic EMS uh, and, and uh, ambulances uh, in the Los Angeles area, and this happens day in and day out all over the United States, uh, come to the hospital in a well-meaning fashion to bring a patient that needs care and evaluation and definitive management, only to be faced with what we call wall time. The amount of time that they spend with the patient on their gurney, hugging the wall of the hallway, waiting for a bed. Now, our goal in running emergency departments is uh, to minimize that wall time and get it to 10 minutes or less. Uh, Unfortunately, that's a rarity, uh, especially during peak periods of time, uh, during the flu season, uh, during uh, uh, specific times of the day and uh, specific days of the week. A uh, paramedic EMS can wait on the wall with their patient for hours in some instances. Uh, this is emblematic of a um, multifactorial problem that's resulted in overcrowding of emergency departments, uh, the most significant of which are two major issues. One, an unprecedented number of hospital closures in the Los Angeles uh, County area without any new hospital development or, or, or building. And number two, uh, decreased number of beds and staffing of those beds uh, within uh, the uh, 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 hospital in general.
0: Julie, is this something you've witnessed uh, while you were making your film, that hospitals are closing and that there's a decreased number of beds?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Lee has referred to these wall delays, which is a indicative of a decreased number of beds because when a paramedic brings a patient into the hospital, they are responsible for that patient until they transfer that patient off their gurney into a hospital bed. That And, you know, the, the uh, responsibility of care has been transferred of that patient. But until you
0: know, that person has been transferred, the responsibility is with...
1: The paramedic, who is still in charge of that patient. And I witnessed people, you know, a, a firefighter paramedics standing against walls for hours. And that is uh, shown in the film. And, the, you know, the, the paramedics interviewed will, you know, reiterate that they've waited two, three, four hours. It's okay.
0: Let's hear from David Pimentel. David is an EMS Battalion Captain with the Los Angeles Fire Department. He's currently assigned to the Fire Chief's Office. He's had over 25 years of experience in pre-hospital emergency service as both a field paramedic and a paramedic supervisor. David, are you with us?
3: Yes, good morning, Dr. Miller. Thank you for having
0: me. You're welcome. Now, let's hear it from your perspective about what happens, because you're right on the line there. You're one of these people, or you're the people that you supervise are the people who are standing against the wall. Is that correct?
3: Yes, and, and I'd have to say that uh, both uh, Julie's film and, and what uh, the doctor uh, from Sentinel, Dr. Weiss, is telling you is, is extremely accurate and extremely frustrating for uh, the men and women that I work with. Um, it's not uncommon whatsoever to go to these uh, emergency rooms and wait literally for hours. Um, the latest statistics show that over 50% of our ambulances that are transporting to hospitals are waiting in that hospital for greater than 15 minutes, which is uh, a trend, uh, disturbing trend that we've seen because I can tell you from my experience when I first came on the department many, many years ago, um, that that was not the case though my my turnaround times were usually ten to fifteen minutes, and I was back on the streets able to help the next person
1: can, can I jump in for a second because I, I just uh, read an interesting t- statistic just to bring this back to the national context nationally, the average wall delay doubled in the last five years it went from twenty minutes to forty five minutes
4: that,
3: that would be absolutely correct
4: and and the importance of this is more than just Taking up the paramedics' time with the patient and the delay in care of the patient. The importance of this is the impact on all the other people in the community served by Los Angeles County and Los Angeles City Fire uh, and in need of care, some of it very emergent care, and those resources are not available because they're at the hospital waiting to provide care to someone else.
3: That's correct. Um... We're looking at uh, an average on-scene time now for our paramedic ambulances, and this is just for our paramedic ambulances. We also have EMT ambulances and assessment engine companies, which fortunately will get on scene quicker. But for our paramedic ambulances we're looking at an average on-scene time now of six and a half minutes, which several years ago was an unheard of uh, time. We, we were getting on-scene normally within four minutes. So uh, we're definitely seeing an increase, in, and uh, although six minutes doesn't seem like a lot of time, uh, I'm sure the doctor would agree that in some certain cases of a critical nature, uh, that's the difference between life and death.
4: No question about it, but I want to make something else very, very clear. If we only focus on the number of emergency beds, or the number of emergency departments, We're going to miss the forest for the trees. The fact of the matter is that this transcends this and is a bigger issue that dates to 1986 when the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act was passed, called Amtala that literally became the nation's safety network so that it would guarantee that anyone who presented to an emergency department in the United States, regardless of their ability to pay, and in fact, the law said we couldn't even ask about their ability to pay, was guaranteed a what's known as a medical screening evaluation, which became even bigger than that. It meant that an emergency department had to see the patient, had to use all of the resources that were within their command and within the hospital's purview to provide stabilization and evaluation of anybody who presented. And so over uh, that 20 some odd year period of time, what's happened is there's been such an erosion of community resources for primary care, for the treatment of seniors with chronic disease who have no access to care any other way has fallen to the emergency department.
0: Yes, and we have one of those people with us right now. Angela, are you here? Yes, I am. Angela, we were told that you used the ER and you called 911 because you were uninsured and you lacked access to health care. Could you tell us your story, please?
2: That is correct. Um, I was suffering from severe fibromyalgia and also unknown um, uh, causes of internal bleeding. And I needed to be seen by a doctor immediately. And uh, I called 911. 911 came out. They took me to the hospital. And uh, I I can definitely relate to the wait times. Um, The paramedics waited with me. I had wall time as well. And um, I was cared for very well at the hospital once care was available, once doctors were available to evaluate me and treat me. but I had to call 911 several times. And there were instances when the paramedics, the same gentleman, would come out and uh, appear a little bit frustrated. Um, and now I'm part of a program where I do receive preventative care, thank God. Um, but uh, prior to that, I, I did rely on 911 for, for health care.
0: We're going to play a clip from Julie's film, and I'm going to ask each of you to react to it. Here it comes.
2: Waiting six hours is not uncommon. And if you go to surrounding hospitals, people come in here tell me they're waiting 12 hours sometimes to get back.
0: Harbor UCLA, right now at this moment, it's at 24 hours, meaning as
2: soon as you walk in the door and they triage you and figure out you're not critical, uh, basically you're someone that could definitely live for another couple of days before being critical. They'll keep you in the waiting
0: room and you'll have to sit there and wait to be seen. It has happened at certain hospitals I've gone in they actually
2: did all the treatments off our gurney, and we just sat there and waited. So we're missing calls in our district because our gurney's tied up at the hospital, because they don't have a bed to put that patient in. I've had a rescue a couple weeks ago, waited four hours for a bed. I've waited sometimes three
1: hours.
4: I was at St. Francis in Linwood for four hours and 15 minutes, standing against the wall with a patient. If they don't have beds, you're going to wait. And because even though we're inside there, you know, we're, we're still on scene with that patient if we if we leave the hospital and don't transfer care to a bed it's negligence or even the county can say you know what there goes your
3: paramedic license and you're gone
0: uh david pimentel will you react to that please
3: well like i said I, uh, and we've talked about this i think that is uh, one of the the primary concerns of our or as well as our members who with their level of frustration increasing it's because of the the waiting time And our members understand that this is not the hospital uh, doing this by choice this is a situation in which uh, there simply are not enough beds to transfer these people from the emergency room up to the floors if uh, that's the situation or even just getting seen uh, is taking hours on end and uh, as mentioned by Julie earlier uh, as an EMS battalion captain I've responded to hospital emergency rooms I've responded to hospitals in on the actual floors to meet with patients who were, felt like they weren't getting in the care that they needed and wanted to be transferred from that facility to another facility. Uh, extremely frustrating for everybody involved, uh, especially for a sick patient.
0: David, what, what is it like when your men come back after they've been on the wall for three or four hours, after they've seen the human results of what we're talking about somewhat abstractly i to. i want you to tell us what it's like for the what what did they come back li- as 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 workers what do they say to you what goes on within them doing their jobs
3: well like i said that level of frustration is carried out throughout the department right now um... our, our people are coming back worn out basically uh, you can imagine uh, as, as busy as these hospital emergency rooms are, as, as busy as the staff is trying to take care of all these uh, patients, and I'll let the doctor address that issue because it certainly is uh, just as frustrating for them. Uh, but for my people, you know, as an EMS Battalion captain, I literally carried around an ice chest at the back of my car so that I could give my members drinks, something to eat, um... just talk to them relieve them sometimes so that they could go to the restroom and so forth uh... because they're stuck there and and it's very frustrating for them they, they want to be out there they want to be doing their job which is to helping people and they are doing that they are helping people when they're at the hospital too but you can imagine they understand that there are people out there that, that are calling nine one one hoping for help and having that ambulance being delayed Uh, As a person out there, as a a citizen uh, of Los Angeles, you can only imagine when someone you love is suffering from a a serious emergency, and it seems like it's taking hours for someone to get to your house, when, in fact, it's taking minutes, but still, that is a very long time to have to wait for someone to show up and help you. There's no question about that. What David is saying is absolutely correct. Think of the emergency department
4: as a giant store with a front door and a back door. The back door is where admitted patients go. It's the route upstairs to an inpatient bed, whether it's an ICU bed, a telemetry bed, or a general medical surgical bed. The front door is where patients come in. They can come in on their own power, or they can come in by paramedic EMS. Let's take Sentinel as an example. I became the chairman there in 2005. It was a perfect storm. In 2003, Robert F. Kennedy uh, Metropolitan Hospital closed. That was the loss of a huge resource for that community. In one year, in 2006, Martin Luther King closes, and Daniel Freeman Memorial Hospital closes. 80,000 emergency department visits from those two ERs alone had to be absorbed by approximately seven facilities. Sentinel absorbed about 50,000 of those visits and saw their total census in the ED rise 300%. Centinella is a facility that is a bit of an anomaly because it has a designated catchment area, meaning it can never close to saturation. We always keep our doors open. Um, And I think we're pretty proud of what we've done uh, because we have a very low uh, wall time and because our beds turn over quickly. But that's the topic of a completely other discussion, discussion on how we engineered that. But when you close that number of hospitals and you don't have clinics in the community p- to provide primary care, then you see the top three illnesses, diabetes, hypertension, a metabolic syndrome, and obesity, become end-stage diseases because we don't address them when they're simple problems that can be treated with medications. We then see them present as heart attacks, end-stage renal disease, needing, uh, needing dialysis, and other problems that become chronic problems that become incredibly labor intensive, that become extraordinarily expensive—not only in dollars, but on the impact to the patient and their families.
0: What about the impact and the, uh, to your staff? What about the what, what's the morale of your staff like, Lee?
4: Staff gets burned out and crushed, uh, especially the night nice staff. When uh, you know there's a very in emergency departments, there's a very big difference between the days and the nights, It's almost two different patient populations. And in Los Angeles, especially in the areas that we're discussing, uh, especially at night, can become a violent crime area. And so now you have the competing ish- uh, interests of patients that are presenting to the emergency department for treatment of illnesses and sicknesses, and those that are presenting uh, for trauma, uh, uh, violent uh, crime-related injuries and illnesses, some requiring absolutely immediate attention or death results. And, and, And those competing interests can be very difficult to balance. And nurses and techs and doctors literally are banging their heads against the wall, and it doesn't seem like anybody else is listening. Now, within that context, they just want to drop this little bomb. Because Congress has, and I think you were mentioning this, Congress is about to either kick the can down the road or solve a problem in pay cuts for physicians, uh, which for me is neither here nor there except what it's going to do. If you cut Medicare uh, reimbursement to physicians by 21%, you're going to find fewer and fewer physicians willing to see Medicare patients. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to emergency departments that are already overcrowded.
0: What is it like for you, Lee, dealing with this?
4: This has been my career. Uh, This is year 30 for me in emergency medicine. Um, uh, You know, uh, this is what I do. I'm I'm an emergency department engineer. I I try to find ways of bringing uh, uh, order to chaos, I try to bring efficiency where there is none. Uh, I'm constantly measuring this in a statistical manner, by looking at things like wall time and the time it takes a patient to see the doctor and the time it takes the patient to see the triage nurse and then how long it takes the labs and x-rays to get back. And by doing that and managing all of these disparate facts, I find that I can shorten the time that a patient spends in the emergency department, and I can actually help the hospital manage their beds by showing them the flow of the patients. And I've had uh, myself and my, uh, my group, Emergent Medical Associates, has had a great deal of success in changing some of this at many of, uh, of the emergency departments that we manage. But I will tell you that we're an, we can't be an island. We can't do it ourselves. Uh, there's so much uh, that's pervasively wrong with the system uh, that just changing a department isn't going to manage it. It, it. The whole system has to change, and it has to change in almost a top-down way. I, I was quoted in the film as saying this, this is no longer a have versus a have not problem. If you have a, a traumatic injury and you have to go to a trauma center uh, and they're all, uh, all of their beds are taken and they have no gurneys and paramedic EMS has to wait on the wall, I don't care how much money you have, you're gonna be negatively impacted. This is no longer have versus have not. This is impacting everyone. It's become a critical problem in Los Angeles i would suggest to you it's becoming a more critical problem elsewhere but having worked on both coasts in a similar capacity in both places um, nothing holds a candle to los angeles
0: are you able to compartmentalize and have a personal life or is this with you all the time
4: well it's always with you all the time because as a, as a regional medical director uh, and, and overseeing uh... seven some odd emergency departments, uh... especially sentinela I'm on call 24/7 365 with a Sky pager. I'm always going to be called and, and frequently three, four, five times in the course of a night have uh, awakened to try to solve problems and help uh, patients get care or, or, or disposition. Um, and you know, you can never compartmentalize all of it, and I wouldn't want to. This is the life I've chosen. I have a wonderful family, and that's probably my greatest salvation. Well, um, but this is what I do.
0: I understand. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. David, coming back to you, is there any help in sight? Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Where are we going?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm afraid to say that. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel unless well, we start thinking outside the box a little bit here. Um, if we continue doing the same things that we've been doing, this is this didn't happen overnight. This has happened over a time span, and uh, it's not getting any better. In in Los Angeles County, the, the Dr. Weiss had told you about the domino effect of closures. In his hospital, certainly one of the most impacted in in the South Los Angeles area. Uh, as a direct result of the closures of some of the some larger hospitals including a county hospital uh... they had to take that burden on and uh... my hats off to to his hospital and his entire team for being able to deal with that because uh, it, it, it boggles my mind when I think about the fact that so I used to work down there when we had all those other hospitals that are open and Sentinel Hospital is still busy uh, as well as Daniel Freeman Inglewood, a hospital that has uh, closed. Uh, they were very busy on a regular basis. and so I can't even imagine how they deal with it uh, on a regular basis now, but it will take us in the fire service and public safety in general, if the, uh, the county health uh, department we all need to start thinking outside the box on how we're going to be dealing more more efficiently with these people.
0: Julie, I want to bring you back and ask you, as in your travels and making the film, have you heard anything that's encouraging or is the whole thing seeming to be going downhill?
1: Well, what I'm hearing, I, I'm hearing from paramedics and uh, EMS chiefs across the country that they are suffering the same problems that L.A. is suffering, um some of the solutions i'm hearing being put out there at least not embraced mind you but at least uh put on the table are ideas uh, that include starting to appropriately track wall delays and in the state of florida they have a position paper out where what they'd like to do is actually start to have the paramedics clock in and clock out when they get to hospital so they can have an accurate accounting. And that there would be weekly meetings with hospital administrative staff to talk about where the uh, kinks in the system are and where the responsibility lies to, you know, have a, a much more fluid throughput of EMS personnel in hospitals. Uh, you know, so that's one thing I've heard uh, EMS chiefs say they would like to be able to deliver to urgent care clinics rather than having to take everybody to a, a you know, a hospital emergency department. Um, you know, there are a number of of possible solutions you know the biggest one of course is to watch how the health care reform bill uh improves community health access because i know that one of the provisions is a major investment in community health centers if we actually see that manifest where there are more community health centers certainly some of the burden can be lifted off of emergency departments because the goal are, is to, to really, you know, lighten the load on the EDs.
0: To lighten the load. In your film, you describe something called frequent flyers. What are frequent flyers, Julie? Uh,
1: these are the folks who end up, you know, uh, in the emergency department over and over and over. Uh, you know, Angela can certainly speak to that because that was her experience where these are folks who call 911, and, you know, in, in our materials, we refer to it as the speed dial. 911 is the speed dial for folks who have no other entry point for health care. You know, so they're really at odds. They don't know where else to go. So one of a couple of things happen. They either allow their condition to get so bad that they feel it's an emergency and this is something we witnessed over and over again that you know a lot of the cases that the paramedics are dealing with are health uh, you know really they were they weren't crises they were health conditions that could have been resolved in a much calmer more efficient way but people had allowed their condition to deteriorate or they simply did not have a doc or they did not have the money to uh, pay for their medication you know we've got one fellow in the film who gets in the back of the ambulance he's run out of his medication months prior And he's now feeling so bad that he gets in the back of the ambulance, gets treated, and then asks to be released from the ambulance because he didn't want to have to go to a hospital. But he
0: got treated in the ambulance enough to satisfy him.
1: Exactly. Understood. Nobody wants to have to get health care that way. I mean, those are the acts of desperate people. Yes.
0: uh,
3: Doctor, there's there's a couple of things that are two things that I can think off the top of my head that, uh, we see and we can release people for and I think uh, Dr. Weiss uh, would agree that uh, COPD patients who need a breathing treatment and our diabetic patients who need um, D fifties is the medication we give them, which is basically sugar water. Uh, a lot of these patients are treated by us in the field and feel fine after we've treated them and no longer wish to go to the hospital. They simply wanted their problem resolved. And that's what we provide for them—is that resolution. But the question is, do we need to provide that service through a 911 service, or is there something else that we could do to provide that kind of service without being uh, taking away from the emergency service?
0: That's a great question.
3: I that think is we're... a great question, and that brings us back to alternative
4: treatment areas, because literally the the only route from a legal perspective for paramedic EMS is the emergency department, which by law, which by law, and I said that before, MTALA must see the patient, has to see the patient, cannot ask the patient in the, uh, in the uh, period of time that it takes to do a medical screening evaluation, a federally mandated evaluation, cannot ask or obtain anything related to insurability or method of payment. The problem here is that we've created an, a, an only system and, and no, no parallel system. And the parallel systems have to be far, far further upstream in the disease process so that we're managing problems like hypertension and diabetes and obesity and uh, preventative care and lipid management all upstream before they become emergencies, before there's the heart attack, the renal failure, uh, respiratory failure requiring support on a ventilator, before all of that occurs because what we're created is a system uh, that's even that's far more expensive uh, uh, from the standpoint of the dollars it takes to care for patient and the suffering that the patient has uh, because of the way the system is designed.
0: Basically what you're saying is if we can become a country that practices a little more prevention, we may not be breaking down so much on the road of life at 3 o'clock in the morning on a back road.
4: For every hospital we closed, we should have opened up Community clinics and put those clinics right where people live and that in the South Bay and in southern part of, of Los Angeles that is the critical block people have nowhere to go
0: and you're advocating clearly for for clinics right in the Neighborhoods right and I don't want to be controversial, but
4: other countries seem to do this very well France does this very well Cuba does this very well uh, uh, and patients are very, very satisfied. Wait times are low. Preventative care is high. Emergency department visits per hundred per thousand people, uh, you know, on a per capita basis, is much lower because people get the things that they need and they use emergency departments more correctly for what they're to be. But let's make no mistake about it. I, as an emergency physician, am not saying that the majority of people who present to an emergency department pre- present inappropriately. Paramedic EMS present the majority of patients that they bring are appropriate for emergency departments and need care, maybe not in the first 20 minutes that they're there, but certainly within an hour, uh, because they'll deteriorate and and have a bad outcome. So what we've done is we've created a system where people are so desperate uh, that they have no other choice but to wait and wait and wait and finally enter the system in the only way they know how most of these people have no means of transportation Most of these people do not live near the hospital uh... they have no means of traveling miles in the condition that they're in so they activate the paramedic ems system in the only way they know how by calling nine one one
0: we're gonna play a clip from julie winnaker's film right now
4: king drew medical center is in critical condition health officials say patients there have been put in quote immediate jeopardy we cannot assure that patients will be safe, or that fundamental hospital standards can be met.
2: The proposed closure of the trauma center will have an impact to the LA County Fire Department. I'm begging of you, don't ignore this. Don't marginalize this. We want our trauma center kept open.
0: Lee Weiss, is this an example of what you've been telling us about?
4: an example of what I've been trying to tell you but you know what? The grand equalizer is happening as well you heard comments from uh, uh, Robert Hochberger the chair of emergency medicine at UCLA Harbor a venerable, wonderful institution and resource for the community and his words were so telling. He said and I'm going to say it again it doesn't matter what your income is this, this problem doesn't recognize wealth It transcends it. If you're wealthy, you certainly are going to have a lot more chances at primary care and preventative care. But when something happens to you, that's the grand equalizer because when you need access to an emergency department, wealth doesn't count. Even if you pick and choose where you go, they're all equally impacted because Mtala says patients can go anywhere to any emergency department they want, and they do and they should. And so when you get into that car accident and you need a neurosurgeon or you need a hand surgeon or you just plain need care, you're going
1: to be impacted because if the beds are full, they're full regardless
4: of
0: what your income is. Are you saying that if a wealthy person in their limousine gets into an accident, is taken to Mount Zion or UCLA Medical Center, ER, it's possible that they will face the same kind of situation that you've been describing? that It's not just possible.
3: It's absolutely true every day uh- absolutely the case
0: Let's hear that, David. I heard you chime I, in there. Uh,
3: yeah, I just want to let you know, I, you know, I worked in the West Los Angeles area for many years. I've taken care of uh, uh, lots of folks there with uh, a great deal of money. And, some, and, and uh, I've taken those people to Cedars. I've taken them to UCLA. And they all kind of had the same opinion, if they went by paramedic ambulance, that uh, they were going to get very well taken care of in those emergency rooms. And I can tell you from a standpoint of medical care, they were very well taken care of. But they were hugging walls just like anybody else with, who, who had a very poor income uh... they were on those walls for hours on end.
0: Angela is that you?
2: Yes, um, I will say when I was taken by paramedics to the hospital uh... there were times that definitely hugging walls that happened um... but the treatment was much quicker than if I would have walked in to the ER on my own and there were times when the paramedics said we know you need to be seen but we're going to give you the option to drive yourself to to the hospital or have someone drive you or do you want us to take you and I I just had learned that I need them to take me otherwise I'll be waiting probably four to five hours
1: longer
3: Well, Angela brings up a very good point and, and that's something that we saw uh, very frequently in the field and that is people do realize that uh, when you're sitting in that emergency room when you're on your eighth hour and you've watched time and time again ambulances arriving into the emergency room Uh, and those patients being seen, or at least the perception of them being seen. Because I do think that, Angela, that it is a little bit of a perception because um, the the people are being triaged quickly, but their their treatment time is about the same when you're sitting on those walls in the emergency room. But that is the perception that the public has, and that is one of the main reasons why we've seen such a dramatic increase in our number of calls. David brings up a good point, and it's something that
4: we in the field, we in the, the, the field of providing emergency medical care in emergency departments, have started to address, which is uh, patients have started to say, hey, if I call 911, I'm going to get seen sooner. It kind of, and I'm not trying to be derogatory, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but it kind of makes uh, paramedic EMS a taxi service and not what they're designed to be. What we've started to do, and every other emergency department has done as well, is right at the triage moment, and we do that immediately on arrival, Right at that triage moment, if you do not need emergency care,
3: you're going to get triaged to the waiting room. And that's happening more and more frequently in other emergency rooms as well. Uh, you are being triaged. If you're not having a life threatening emergency, you just took that very expensive ambulance ride to the emergency room and you're going to be in the waiting room just like everybody else who would have walked in. And that's not what they have because no choice. mean. That's because they have to do it that way. Right.
0: There's no choice. There's,
4: There's no choice.
2: I, uh, There's more than
4: I- enough people. Presenting to the emergency department on a minute-by-minute basis that need those monitors, that need rapid resuscitation, that need rapid evaluation and interaction and, uh, and the application of care, or else they're going to have a life-threatening problem.
0: Okay, we're going to play one final clip from Judy Winickor's wonderful film, Firestorm. We are the county hospital for the poor, and yet we're the trauma center for everyone. So it makes no difference if you have the best insurance in the world or no insurance. The next time you're in a traffic accident, if, God forbid, we have an earthquake or bioterrorist attack, we are the place that you want to come. We are the place you're going to be brought regardless of where you want to come. And if we're overcrowded and have no gurneys, you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to get the kind of care that you deserve. That's
4: Robert Hochberger, the chair of emergency medicine at UCLA Harbor. And what he just said is that there is no surge capacity, and David can speak to this. If there is an earthquake, if a plane crashes LAX, if a 911 scenario happens, there's no surge capacity. All the beds are being used right now. The surge is already taken up.
3: Our most recent Metrolink disaster that we had here in the city of Los Angeles, uh, we made very good use of our helicopters as well as L.A. County uh, Fire Department's helicopters. We were flying out some of the most critical patients, not, not even to distant hospitals within the city or within the county of Los Angeles. We were actually flying them out of our county boundaries just because our hospitals do not have the capability of dealing with the disasters such as that.
1: I'd like to talk about the flu uh, pandemic scenario because, Earthquake, we expect there to be havoc and, you know, uh, overwhelming demand on our emergency services. And, and the train wreck, I, I agree, David, was a fantastic example of the surge capacity of the fire department. You know, the nine-one-one system has actually is, is prepared for a surge capacity. Correct. But I'd like to talk about the, the outbreak of a flu because this is an annual occurrence that you know i there's a line in the film that to me is the most chilling moment of the film where we have the interim ceo um, dixon i'm sorry i've, I've forgotten his, his first name Steven um, okay where he says that at, he's the CE, interim ceo at Gardena hospital and he says a flu pandemic would basically shut down all of our hospitals in about 12 hours
4: uh, maybe less depends on the hospital um, all of us this year were uh, and last year We're incredibly concerned about pandemic flu, and we did a lot of things in the background to get ready, including seeking permission from the Department of Health Services uh, to create alternative treatment areas in the hospital setting, including the purchase of mobile uh, emergency departments that we would set up in in the parking lot, including a scenario that Stanford did, which was... Care in your car when you drove up and you didn't even go into the emergency department
0: because there is no surge capacity. Okay. Folks, so often in our society, when a force majeure, a force of nature occurs, we hear, why didn't we prepare? We weren't prepared. Where are we going to point the finger? I want to thank the four of you for coming on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics and sounding the alarm bell, bringing us this information about this lack of surge capacity, about what's going on in the interrelationship between the fire service and the emergency rooms. I want to thank Julie Winokur, David Pimentel, Dr. Lee Weiss, and Angela. It's been a privilege having you on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. For more information about the film Firestorm, go to firestormmovie.com. That's firestormmovie.com. We also have information about this program on our show website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. That's mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Our website also has information about past shows, future shows, and more information about people and topics on the program. The website also has some of our shows archived, so you can listen to them, including this one on the website. Again, it's mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Well, where's the good news in all of this? Is there any? I think part of what we were hearing from all of these folks today, is the best way that you can help yourself is by not being in that situation to begin with. And the best you can do for that is prevention. That means learning as much as you can about nutrition. It means getting the best air that you can breathe and the best water that you can breathe, the cleanest water. It means exercising you hear it over and over again it's got to be something that we really do rather than just talk about because the healthier that we can possibly stay the less we're going to be in the system and you heard about a system that has broken you've heard about it today from experts thank you for listening to today's broadcast of mind body health and politics which is contributed to by our staff our producer Ron Rogers, and our engineer Mike Delaura. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at this time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.